just to very briefly recap, uh, they are sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, sola fide and sola gratia that uh, often should be seen together by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the fourth sola, Christ alone. We just sung that a little while ago in, uh, in Everlasting God. And then today we come to the final sola, the one that in many ways brings them all together and gives them a focus not only in terms of what we should believe, but also how we should react in terms of of our own lives. This is, of course, the phrase, to the glory of God alone. And we're about to read uh, one of the, the greatest statements in Scripture uh, dealing with this theme, uh, the glory of God. We're going to read from Romans 11, uh, verse 33 to 36. Uh, but before we do that, I, I thought it might be good to just take a minute to orient ourselves as to uh, what we're reading and where we are reading it. I was uh, thinking of describing this as blocks, but that might be a little bit too linear. So imagine three very, very large balls resting against one another. That, that's not linear, I guess. So, and they represent the three major sections of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, the first one is Romans 1 to 8. Uh, Paul begins the letter to the Romans by stating that he's about to speak about the gospel, the power of God to salvation. And then he goes on to explain what this gospel is and ends chapter 8 with that emphatic statement about the result of the gospel, bringing us to God. Who now shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in the gospel that has come to us. So that's Romans 1 to 8. Paul's great emphatic theological statement as to what the gospel means. That's our first big ball. The next one, Romans 9 to 11, where Paul now discusses the issue of the fate of the Jewish people, those who have heard the message but who do not hold to what we might term justification by faith, who are still trying to earn their own salvation. And then uh, chapters 12 to 16, where Paul answers the question, well, if all of this is true, if we are indeed justified by faith, if the gospel is the greatest treasure that we can imagine, what should our response to this be? And I hope most of you will be able to recite that response by heart. Question, what should we now do? Answer, therefore, in view of God's great mercies, in other words, Paul says, in view of what I've just said, give yourself to God as holy and living sacrifices. The answer, in other words, live for him, live for his glory. And he continues to expound on that right up to the end of the letter in chapter 16, where he gives greetings to the church in Romans. So our three big balls, Romans 8, 1 to 8, exploring the implications of the gospel, 9 to 11, the gospel in Israel, and then the last section, we might call it the practical section, how do we now respond? Our passage lodges between balls 2 and 3. In other words, obviously, right at the end of 11, before the start of 12. And it is very, very significant that it is there. Because Paul here ends his theological reflections about exactly what the gospel is. And he, in a sense, by including this here, is saying, this, this right here, is at the heart of how we should respond to the gospel. In other words, before we begin to talk about practical aspects, here it is. 
And what is here is the statement about seeking the glory of God. Right, so let's read together from verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. To him be the glory forever. The phrase that we're looking at today, uh, obviously, is in the same vein. The idea that God alone is worthy of honor and glory. Now, I've had a relationship with this phrase in Latin that goes right back to the early years of my childhood. Uh, maybe not in a spiritual sense, but certainly in an economic sense. You see, I was supposed to be reminded of this every single time that I pulled a coin from my pocket to pay for something. On the South African Rand coin, there are two things on the front. Um, this is the design that I grew up with. It's slightly different, but it's still there. Um, it's a springbok, our national anthem, anthem, sorry, national animal, which we eat with great uh, delight sometimes. Um, <laughs> uh, and then this phrase in Latin, soli deo gloria, soli deo gloria. This is the Latin for to the glory of God alone. Now, this does not mean that God is especially to be praised when a Springbok rugby team is doing well, um, although we are thankful for that as well. It has a, a deeper and more profound meaning. It means that when we get a coin out of our pocket to pay for something, we are also to be reminded of higher, of spiritual uh, priorities. I guess, in this sense, it is equivalent to the phrase, in God we trust, on the American dollar note. Although ours is a bit smarter, it's in Latin, you see. So, um, <laughs> but there's obviously a problem with uh, putting exalted, profound statements like this on mundane objects like coins. You see, we, we very, very quickly get used to, to it. Um, and I guess not more than half of South Africans would actually know uh, not only that it's there, but what it means. Also, and perhaps a more profound problem, if you do this, um, you're obviously, in a sense, sending money out into the world that's going to be used in many, many cases, not for the glory of God. There's obviously lots of things that you can do with those rands that would not glorify God in any possible sense. So I'm not knocking the fact that it is there. I think that the main thing that I want to emphasize is that we can easily, very, very easily, uh, become used to a phrase like this. It, it sort of becomes part of our mental furniture, and we never really think about it all that much. Now, you may not go about repeating the phrase in Latin every now and then, uh, but if you're a Christian and if you're uh, in church and praying regularly at church uh, prayer meetings in other contexts, you probably use this phrase all the time. You certainly hear it all the time uh, from the pulpit as we're exhorted to live to the glory of God. And we can, therefore, so easily uh, get used to it in a sense that um, we don't even notice it anymore. And this is, of course, a real, real shame. Because this phrase, solideo gloria, to the glory of God alone, powerfully encapsulates a way of looking at the world and 
a way of responding to God's grace in Christ. It is for this reason that this phrase runs like a golden thread through the works of the major reformers. You can find it in Luther, in Zwingli, in, in, in Calvin, and in so many others, as they constantly try to bring their readers back to this key insight that life and faith is the glory of God alone. And I think it's therefore quite appropriate that we end our solar series uh, with reflections on this. Because it is, on, on the one hand, very, very easy to say the Reformation happened, we should celebrate it, we should be glad. But on the other hand, much, much harder to answer the question, so what? What are we supposed to do with this in the everyday? And Solideo Gloria certainly helps us to do this. Before we dig in to what this phrase meant to the reformers, I think it's important to just note a little bit about our text again. Uh, if we want to describe it in a, in a nice little formal word, a word that you may have heard around church a few times, uh, we can say that this statement is a doxology. This comes from two Greek words spliced together, doxa, meaning glory, and logia, saying. And a doxology, therefore, is a statement or a saying of praise or of glory. Doxologies should remind us that, as we shall see, the glory of God is to be offered in all of life. And it is interesting and enlightening and important that Paul very often interrupts what he's saying by bringing these doxologies in there. And in the process, he wants to say, I am not merely busy with a deep theological argument or, or with practical exhortation. We need to understand that praise is to be offered for, uh, to God for the things that we are learning. And I think the most important thing right here at the beginning that we have to say about doxologies is that our most important and proper and initial response must not be to want to analyze, to begin to ask the question, now what does this mean, and how does this verb relate to that verb, or, or whatever. That's important things, uh, and we should do them eventually. But our initial response to a doxology should be to join in. A doxology is there to exhort, to call us to praise, to in a sense say, here is a great truth, join me, in praising God for this. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. And as we reflect on Paul's exposition of the gospel and its great truths, and the fact that it is a truth that is beyond searching out, we pray, Lord, that right here at the beginning, you will just humble ourselves, uh, that we will, in great humility, come before you. Not in the first instance trying to minutely analyze what we are reading here, but just to stand before you in awe and in wonder that you, such a great God, the Almighty, the God of the universe, called small human beings like us into fellowship with you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot understand the depth of this mercy, its paths are indeed, as we, we read, beyond tracing out. But we want to add our voices to the voices of your people around the world today and say, thank you, Lord. We thank you for this. We praise you. We glorify you. Because indeed, you belong all the glory 
all the power, all the praise. In Jesus' name we say these things and pray these things. Amen. So let me now try and bring our solar series uh, to, to an end point by showing not only what the glory of God means in, in these three different contexts, but also, I hope, how they relate to what we've been looking at earlier on in this series. I believe that we see three primary uses of this phrase uh, in the era of the Reformation, but certainly also in the letter to the Romans. And I'm hoping to latch on to both of those as we go along. The first, and I guess the most obvious one, is simply this, that God alone is worthy of worship. God alone is worthy of worship. So if we say, to the glory of God alone, we also say, God alone must be worshipped. There's, there's no room or space for worship to be offered to anything else. We see this, obviously, as a theme right from the beginning of Scripture, most particularly in the giving of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, the Lord says to his people. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no one else must, can, or should be worshipped. When Paul now applies this uh, in the beginning of the letter to the Romans, he speaks of how people are very aware of the fact that this is the case. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Then goes on to say that people not only know about God, but know that he is worthy of worship. But, Paul says, human reaction, our human sinful reaction, is to turn away from this and worship anything else but God. Read with me, if you will, Romans 1 from verse 21. If you have your Bibles handy. Paul speaks here about the human condition, about humanity in our unregenerate state. He says, for although they, us, knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. There's that word again, glory. Paul, in fact, begins his gospel presentation, therefore, with a reflection of the glory of God. But here, it is obviously framed in a very, very negative sense. The fact that many people give glory not to God, but to other things. To birds, animals, reptiles. In other words, Paul is speaking here about idolatry. Idolatry, uh, in its essence, therefore, is to rob God of his glory by placing or uh, giving glory to, to something or someone else. And the gospel is meant, therefore, to turn us back from that, to bring us to repentance, and to, in a sense, redirect our glory giving to the one who is worthy of this. But can you see this? There's a very, very neat and important symmetry in the book of Romans, where Paul says that at the heart of the human condition is the neglect of giving glory to God, or neglecting to give glory to God, and right at the end, as he uh, ends his reflection on the gospel, he says, to God alone be the glory. This is the, the end result, therefore, of understanding and responding to the gospel. God getting all the glory. Now, 
Let's try and apply this for a moment to the time of the Reformation. I suppose this is one of the, the key things that people would know about the history of this period, that there were many instances and places where things, objects, ideas other than God were worshipped. We can point to the proliferation of so-called saints' cults, where many, many other uh, so-called saints were placed in churches uh, and stood there, in a sense, as intermediaries uh, towards worshipping God. But in, in, in effect, in, in practice, very often, the praise went to these saints. There were many instances of objects, known in this instance as relics, uh, that were in many ways venerated. Again, they would often be associated with the saints, uh, maybe uh, a bone. Many churches had bones of all the saints. Several churches had the head of John the Baptist. Um, you can figure that out for yourself. Um, <clears throat> there were many, many uh, pieces of the so-called true cross and, and so on. Um, and these objects associated with the saints as they were very, very quickly and very often became the, uh, the focus of, of, of local cults of devotion, where pe people would travel for miles uh, to go and worship at these shrines. Perhaps the first English novel, The Canterbury Tales, by Geoffrey Chaucer, has a pilgrimage to the shrine of one of these saints, Thomas Abeckett, at its heart. It's easy to see how this can detract from the worship of the one true God, because it certainly was not giving him glory as the one who alone is worthy of glory. Here's Martin Luther writing about the so-called pilgrimage trade, where people go all about Germany and indeed the world to pray at these shrines. He is here addressing the bishops of the church who is permitting this. Um, oh, what a terrible and heavy reckoning these bishops will have to give who permit this devilish deceit and profit by it. They should be first, the first to prevent it, and yet they regard it all as a godly and holy thing. They do not see that the devil is behind it to strengthen greed, to create a false and fictitious faith. That's the key statement here, to create a false and fictitious faith because the worship of God is not at the center of it. To weaken the parish churches, to multiply taverns and harlotry, these people had to stay somewhere as they traveled, to lose money and working time to no purpose, and to lead ordinary people by the nose. If they had read scripture as well as the damnable canon law, and as the church law, they would not know how to deal with this matter. So a key part of the Reformation, as it got going, was therefore to address the cult of the saints head on and to redirect worship to the glory of God alone. And this, therefore, was one of the key things that people like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin meant when they used this phrase. Redirect your worship from whatever is not worthy of worship to God. Do not give glory to all of these other things, ideas, objects. Give glory to God alone. And that was obviously very much a, a ringing cry of reorienting our priorities to gospel priorities. Now let me try and apply it. You may think this has very, very little to do with us uh, here at the beginning of the 21st century. We, especially in, in our circles, do not go to shrines as a, as a matter of course. We do not have pieces of the true cross on our mantelpiece or pictures of the Virgin Mary um, somewhere in our house. 
yet it's still there. Uh, it's just a little bit more technologically advanced these days. I went on eBay the other day and found that you could buy a piece of the true cross for $6,000 if you have the money to spare. Um, so even the very thing that, that Luther invades so strongly against uh, is still present. You know, you can still, still buy these things. Uh, although, again, this is perhaps not primarily our temptation. And we might therefore look at Luther's statement a little bit earlier, earlier and the ringing reminder to live to the glory of God alone by saying, well, tick, we, we're doing it. This is not our problem. However, this is not the only form of idolatry out there. So we need to remind it of what Calvin wrote. We need to be reminded of what Calvin wrote a little bit later. As he spoke about idolatry and about not giving God glory. And he did so in perhaps one of the most memorable phrases in his writings. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed by the crassest ignorance. He conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Therefore, the mind begets an idol, the hand gives it birth. Daily experience teaches that flesh is always uneasy until it has obtained some figment like itself, which it may fondly find solace in, as in an image of God. Calvin says to us, or tells us, the mind is a perpetual factory of idols. And that does not mean, in other words, that we only construct physical objects as idols, but we can very easily latch on to ideas, to relationships, to uh, lifestyles as idols, as things that get the glory instead of God himself. Thus, this is the, my application as, uh, of this first principle. The truth of solideo gloria, to the glory of God alone, stands therefore in opposition not only to obvious, blatant, physical forms of idolatry, but also to the idolatry of the heart as it powerfully calls us to worship God and worship him alone. It is therefore, in essence, a call to repentance, to turn away from our own idols to worship the one God and the one God alone. Second principle, that again runs like a, a golden thread through the writings of the major reformers when it comes to this passage, is the fact that God alone is to be praised for our salvation. And this now hopefully ties in very, very strongly to what's been said earlier about by grace alone, through faith alone. This passage, as we have noted, stands right at the end of Paul's discussion of justification by faith. It should therefore logically be viewed as encapsulating our response to God's grace in Christ. There is, of course, a way of talking about salvation that glorifies ourselves and not God. Many people's favorite Bible verse is not in the Bible at all. It is the verse or the statement, God helps those who help themselves. And many people think in these terms about salvation. Think of, for example, the Pharisee praying in the temple in Luke 18 from verse 11, where instead of humbling himself before God, he gets out 
his spiritual resume, saying to God, look how great I am. You have no choice but to accept me. God, I thank you, he prays, that I am not like other men, extortionist, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe, tithe of all I get. The subtext of this prayer is obviously to say that God had no choice but to accept this Pharisee based on his righteous works. This is, of course, a world away from an understanding that we cannot in any way uh, influence God through our own deeds to accept us. In, indeed, Jesus uh, then contrasts this prayer with one of the most amazing prayers in the whole Bible, uh, also one of the shortest. Because he says the, the tax collector simply beat his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the question, who went home righteous? The answer should be obvious. The one who realized his utter inability to save himself and threw himself on God's mercy. We must remind ourselves that God owes us exactly nothing. That we cannot, as it were, take ourselves by the hair and pull till we reach heaven. As our text says in uh, verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Obvious answer? This is a rhetorical question. No one. No one can stand before God saying, you have no choice but to accept me based on my good deeds. By grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, when we speak about salvation, it is not to give ourselves a pat on the shoulder, telling the world how great we were to come into this position. We need to speak humbly, with great, great humility, knowing that this is sheer grace. John Calvin wrote a commentary on our text, and this is one of the statements that he makes, especially on the idea of God not owing us anything. Whenever then we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, let a bridle be always set on our thoughts and in, on our tongues. So be careful, Calvin says, before you speak. As, as we pull a horse back with a bridle, be careful how you speak about this. Um, <clears throat> where am I? Let a bridle be always set on our thoughts and tongues, so that after having spoke, spoke, spoken soberly and within the limits of God, God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. Calvin goes on to say, this is a remarkable passage for we are here taught that it is not in our power to constrain God by our good works to bestow salvation on us, but that he anticipates the undeserving by his propitious goodness. But if we desire to make an honest examination, we shall not only find that God is in no way a debtor to us, but that we are all subject to his judgment, that we not only deserve no layout, but that we are worthy of eternal death. So to... Um, Paraphrase Calvin in uh, the terms of that earlier statement. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Because it is sheer grace and mercy that we belong to him. 
So when we say to the glory of God in this context, we also thank God for his salvation and acknowledge it, that we had nothing to do with it. That is God's sheer grace alone. So first principle, God alone is to be worshipped. Second principle, God alone is to be worshipped even for our salvation. And then lastly, our lives should be lived to God's glory. So Paul ends uh, this first section of Romans, the first two sections of Romans, with this ringing statement about the glory of God. And now the obvious question, what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? How do we, in fact, respond? Because obviously it is more than a grand theological scheme that is presented to us. We are also called upon to live according to these truths. So Paul responds with perhaps the most famous therefore in all of Scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So how do we respond to the gospel by giving glory to God? We praise and we pray and we glorify, but we also live. And we live in a way that points to him and points to his glory. As Paul puts it in another place, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whatever you do, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do this to the glory of God. The key insight here is that God can be worshipped in the words and the deeds, in the lives of every single believer. The reformers confronted a church that operated a very, very strict hierarchical system saying that there are people who are closer to God, those in holy orders, those who live in monasteries, those who live in convents. They have an inside line to God. Their prayers are more acceptable. They are on an inside track to salvation. And then there's the rest, the plebs, who may scrape in, may have to spend a bit of time in purgatory even, uh, but who are much, much further from God. And in this sense, we are dealing in the pre-Reformation age, and we're still dealing with that today in many cases, with a strict sacred-secular divide. In a sense saying that some people, through their vocation and through the, the jobs that they do, are closer, have an inside track to God. And yet here we are reminded that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we can and should do all things to the glory of God. So a key theme for Luther was the idea of the priesthood of all believers. And this does not mean that he meant that every single person should officiate at church services. Not priests in that sense, but priests in the sense that we can access God's mercy, uh, all of us, equally through the gospel. There are no hierarchies here. There's no single category of society that are automatically deemed to be closer to God. All of us, all of us, are urged to offer our bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. As Jean Vive, commenting on this aspect of the Reformation, said, every kind of work, including what had heretofore been looked down upon, the work of peasants and craftsmen, was an occasion for priesthood, for exercising a holy service to God and to one's neighbor. All of us, whatever we do, wherever we live out our vocation, can and should live to the glory of God. 
And that changes everything. I once read a lovely, lovely little story of uh, two craftsmen doing exactly the same job on a, a building site, building one of the, the great cathedrals in Europe. And they were both asked the same question, what are you doing? And the one said, I'm shaping bricks, and it's breaking my back. Horrible. Can't wait for this day to end. And the other person said, I am building one of the greatest buildings ever for the glory of God. Same thing. They're doing exactly the same thing. But their perspective on what they are doing is obviously vastly different. This insight was wonderfully expressed by the great musician Johann Sebastian Bach, himself a child of the Reformation, who often wrote uh, or signed his works with the letters SDG at the end. And by now, now you'll obviously know what it means. Soli Deo Gloria. This I offer for the glory of God. He even did this in compositions that we would not necessarily view as primarily religious in nature. What he wanted to communicate through this was to say that even though I'm not a priest, I'm not a member of the clergy or whatever, this, this little thing, or we might say this big thing because he was marvelously talented, I want to chan channel for the glory of God. And I want to give God glory for what he has given me. As such, the concept of the glory of God powerfully challenged, as I said, the so-called sacred-secular divide that the medieval church sought so hard or fought so hard to maintain by reminding us that there are no callings or professions with an inside line of, to God, but that all of us, no matter who we are, where we are, should seek to serve and honor God wherever he has placed us. By elevating even the mundane activities of our daily lives to acts of worship, it gives us purpose and sense as we work for the glory of God, as we strive to fulfill the calling that we have been created for. This is famously and beautifully expressed in the first line of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As we seek to glorify God, we're really coming back to the core of our purpose, to what we have been called to be. Let me conclude. I said at the beginning, this is probably a statement that we are so used to that we don't hear it anymore. So often we say, speak about the glory of God without thinking through the implications. And I think this Sunday, Reformation Sunday, as we have been reminded about what this means in the letter to the Romans and also in the Reformation era, is a good time to just pause and ask, is this really true of us? As we say, God alone is worthy of worship. Is this true in my life? Am I worshiping God and God alone? If not, repentance is called for. As we say, God alone is to be glorified for salvation. Is this true of you and me? Or are you perhaps still trusting in yourself? some way, that through your deeds, God will have no choice but to save you. If we say that our lives are to be lived to God's glory, is this the way that I think about my life, about my vocation, about where I'm placed? Do I really seek to glorify him in everything?
these are difficult questions and things that will probably take a while to probe in our own lives. But let me ask you in this week as we celebrate the Reformation to ask these questions of yourself. And may this time, therefore, be an occasion where we are pulled back powerfully to a key and a central focus to the glory of God in our own lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful and exultant statement at the end of the letter to the Romans. Thank you for the way in which it calls us back to seeking your glory and your glory alone. Lord, we have to confess that often we give glory to ourselves or to something or someone else. Bring us back, dear Lord, we pray, to a single-minded focus on glorifying you and no one and nothing else. Lord, forgive us for the times where we perhaps still trust in our own efforts. Help us to be reminded that we depend and should depend on you alone. And Lord, help us as well as we go from here to seek to glorify you wherever you have placed us. Lord, may these truths strike deep into our hearts. May it also be a, an integral part of who we are as a church as we celebrate the Reformation, but also as we go out and share the gospel. Glorify your name through us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.